reaching out for help that morning, I was very lucky that my best friend answered the answered the phone call. Um, but that, I guess, started me on a path to actually being able to ask for help and being able to speak about um, speak about what I was going through. Um, and then, in turn, the more I spoke about it, obviously, you start to be become more comfortable. But the other thing that I started to see was the help that was available. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Throughout the last year and a half, there have been many episodes of Deep in the Weeds openly discussing the issues with mental health in the hospitality sector and, at least traditionally, its unwillingness to acknowledge them. And although in recent years the paradigm has shifted, this recent upheaval in our lives has brought it to the fore. There are some that have been at the forefront of change to deliver support, remove the stigma of mental health, and provide a place for people to share their issues. Mal Mears is the founder of Food for Thought Fundraising Initiative and creator of Food Plus Wine Pop-Up. Mal, how are you going? I'm good, thanks, mate. How are you? I'm good. You've uh, worked in some pretty incredible uh, restaurants over your uh, career so far, um, but you've done a full circle already and you're back sort of in the area you grew up? Yeah, I mean, I, I've i been pretty fortunate to, um, yeah, learn my craft at, yeah, quite a number of great cities and number of great restaurants. Um, but, yeah, it's definitely time to finally come home and see what Brisbane's doing. On that journey, um, you had all sorts of issues and created initiatives for change, which I'd love to dive into um, at some stage, but... Where did your interest in food begin? Um, it was really just out of luck. I sort of fell into it. Um, I was, you know, I I wanted to finish high school, and Dad thought it would be good to have a vet in the um, in the family because he was trained greyhounds all throughout my childhood. Um, <laughs> good business decision, uh, but that sort of went by the wayside when I um, passed out a couple of times in the operating theatre, and then realised it for me um and then yeah i guess i um at a loss i moved to sydney um for a girl uh as you do out of high school um i fell deep deep in love and then <laughs> upended it and um yeah i fell into hotel uh, i went to hotel school and then just fell into um cooking uh, a, a chef approached me out front of um fraser and hughes uh, one morning when i was waiting to buy my textbook and I needed a job and started as a kitchen hand and just, yeah, really fell in love with it from there. Those early days, what were the real key moments in restaurants that sort of helped that appetite for the working in the industry? Uh, I mean, I guess like growing up in Queensland and stuff, it was like we were pretty like, we were, yeah, like a really working class family. Like, um, so, you know, it wasn't very much, um, like, yeah, it was, you know, meat and three veg, that sort of thing. So like that humble introduction to food really created a, like a hunger and a passion for knowledge and learning about all these things. And I guess the pivotal thing was when, um, 
I was working with Frankie and he taught me how to make gnocchi for the first time. And it was just a, just to see someone do something like that with, with a potato and just never, I'd never eaten gnocchi before. Like I think, you know, a fancy, fancy meal for me growing up was, you know, when mum would bake bolognese and penne in the oven, <laughs> probably, <laughs> probably crack a barrel on top. Uh, but yeah, my mind was a little bit blown when, um, this guy was making bolognese and cooking it for 12 hours and, um, and then, you know, making these potato things with flour and potato that, you know, um, I'd never really seen. You ended up in the kitchens of uh, Cruz and Pendolino before moving to Melbourne to work at Bistro Guillaume. What, what was that period of time like? Um, I guess it was probably me being a little bit of a rat bag. Um, so I was, <laughs> well, I was a young kid that was away from home, sort of left to my own devices trying to figure out the world um, and then throwing the, the melting pot of um, being a chef and, you know, work hard, play hard. Um, I think I definitely burnt the candle at both ends for a, for a long period of time while, um, you know, I, um, I often say that um, I really threw myself into cooking just because I, um, you know, it was something that I was good at and I just had to be – the best that I could be because that was my way of, you know, changing, changing the mold and making something of myself. So I think I probably in hindsight went a little bit too hard um, in doing that. And the repercussions of being away from home without your support network, if you have a bad day, those bad days when you've got all your eggs in one basket, are they're pretty terrible. Um, you know, that, that leads to going out for a beer with the boys, which often would lead to o'clock in the morning, and then that didn't make for a great day the next day. Um, in hindsight, now it just compounded. Um, so those are, pretty, you know, pretty influential. But I was definitely finding my way. You ended up uh, working at Church Street and Ateca before moving to London and. There was um, big changes in your life in 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 the UK. Tell, what was it like over there compared to the kitchens of Australia? Um, well, I th- probably sillyly thought that I had a good grasp on things. Um, you know, I was able to move through the kitchens quite quickly here and pick up things. Um, and then, yeah, I got got over there, and it was just a different world. Um, you know, the, the biggest thing was probably the amount that you work over there. Um, you know, the hours are pretty big um, compared to what I'd done before, I mean, for a solid day. And then just the hierarchy of things, you know, yeah, it was a lot more like a military-style um, operation. There was definitely no um, opportunity for conversation with things it was sort of just do what I say and um, get on with it but I mean I attribute those six months in London it's probably the toughest six months of my life but probably that have given my career and my abilities probably the most Um, but yeah they also took away a little bit of that passion um, 
and made me sort of start resenting resenting cooking, which is why I um probably why I only did six months in London and then um and then went travelling. Tell us about that time um, when you were travelling. Um, what and what made you resent cooking? What was going through um, your mind at that time? Um, I guess. I mean, there was a lot going on back home. My um, my pop was sick, and then I just felt like I wasn't good enough. And then just the um, just the mentality of you know there'd be people stealing your prep, they sit you up. Um, just wasn't a very nice environment at the time. Um, and then, yeah, that sort of like, you know, the, the yelling and stuff. And like, I'm, I'm not one to say that you need to be babied, but it was, it was definitely on another level. Um, and it was just sort of that mentality that you, you, you know, you take someone apart to put them back together. But I feel like it wasn't very often that those pieces were, um, we're put back together. <laughs> so you're sort of just getting dismantled and yeah, just never really felt achievable. Um, so it was just that, that thing. I thought, well, okay, if, if I'm really not enjoying this, this is, this is something that I love and I need to change my environment and I need to find, find something that's going to give me, you know, if I'm spending 16 hours a day in a kitchen, you know, I don't want to be going home and feeling like shit about about myself. And you know, there's definitely jobs in the past where I've had those tough days. And then, you know, how did traveling through Europe uh, inspire you in those days? I I guess it just gave me like a look at the you know the food landscape because I I had a lot of experience in Italian food, and then I like I just started like learning about French cookery and so I had that sort of European feel but just actually going to these small European cities and you know like I just remember going to Florence and um you know eating the bistecca alla Florentina and just really that resonating with me like after I'd just been out at one of the farms to see like the cows like that just sort of seeing that connection and actually experiencing something that you know, I'd seen on a menu in Australia and cooked like a thousand times over, but to actually be sitting there tucking into a um, like a 1.2 kilo big tea, <laughs> definitely sworn that he'd cooked medium rare, but was probably only just put on the grill. <laughs> <laughs> that sort of thing was, um, yeah, like really, really great to see, you know, and then just going around just the whole, you know, the romance of those beautiful old cities. It's just, I don't think anything can beat it. When you came back to Australia, you spent some time at some pretty incredible restaurants and amazing chefs. What what have been the real pivotal, important moments and restaurants in your career? Um, I feel like being part of um, Ides during the pop-up phase was really, um, was a really amazing part for my career. We did a lot of um, a lot of really cool events, um, and then the fact of what we achieved. Um, you know, Pete's got this amazing um, thought process where he's, you know, as a chef, he really, really thinks about the experience from the seconds that you know someone books, not just like when they're walking 
walking through the door. Uh, so just being a part of that and sort of seeing his thought process as well as um, his, like his style with cooking is so considered and um, like a lot of layering of flavor. So you sort of have this, this thing on the plate. It looks quite simple, but if you actually think back to the ways he started it and thought about it and the different layers, textures and how considered it is you just it really blew my mind to see that um yeah yeah my time with him and then the other one would probably be peter gilmore um so yeah two p pgs um he you know i mean pete's amazing like just his whole philosophy and like the amount of work that he's put into reviving all these these varieties of things just that way, you know, we're all benefiting now, but just the fact that he had the foresight to try and do that. So he, you know, had these things to play with it at his disposal. Um, and then just the whole natural approach, like nothing really ever seems forced. It is. Yeah. I could probably, yeah, I would. I'd, I've, I've definitely been back to the kitchens a few times since I uh, finished up to spend a bit of time just to see, you know, what was different and what's going on because it's just one of those places that I think you can always gravitate back to because it's it's always going to be something there that you can learn. Peter Gunn's I'd started as a pop-up and has become one of Australia's best restaurants and, as you mentioned, you were there in the early days with a pop-up. And you eventually um, started uh, pop-ups and it's been a key feature of your career since then. Tell us about the decision to um, to move into that sort of realm. Um, well, yeah, I guess off the back of doing um, Food for Thought um, for a couple of years, I think by that stage, um, and then obviously, you know, having experience and help Pete with all of those, uh, eventually it sort of, became the time that um, I met my wife at the time. So she was a sommelier at Tonka. Um, and, yeah, on the weekends we were just – we would sort of challenge each other and, you know, we might start with a bottle of wine and she would tell me all about it and what the things were that went with it. And then I would, you know, do a market run and we'd go through the markets and start build a, build a dish or a menu we'd just spend Sunday cooking and drinking a bottle of wine – or three um and then we sort of invited a few people around um and you know they were like oh this is really good like you guys should you know why aren't you doing this so then that's sort of off the back of that that's where that started and i mean now we've we did nine months in europe but we did we did a wine bar in Fremantle for three months randomly this is like a the original Fremantle Bakery, so it's like a 120-year-old bakery space with this beautiful courtyard. Um, so, we, yeah, we shipped everything over there. Um, yeah, like 10 boxes of handmade plates. <laughs> um, and, yeah, I think, like, just, yeah, the confidence to do it myself. Pete saw it probably about six months before I did. Wow. Yeah, and this is the thing, so... Um, and then, yeah, I think we had the conversation whether or not 
when I was going to go full time, whether or not I'd be a part of it or whether or not um, I'd just continue doing my own thing, um, which is probably the hardest thing I've had to do. Um, just being, I think, honest with myself about, because I'd always said that I'd be there for that. Um, and then the realization that I'd sort of, I wanted to, to feed this fire to do my own food. Um, and yeah, that sort of, I think that freedom was really amplified when I got to France because I think you get trapped in this, this bubble of like being worried about what's going on on Instagram. You know, you're scrolling, you're looking at what other people are doing. You're worried about the chefs are they're sometimes a catty bunch of, um, characters. So they Things, nothing's really new in the game. It's just different variations of it. So there's definitely chefs that like to like sit there and be like, oh, he's doing that. He copied that off that person. So I think in France, like that was the first opportunity that I had to really do my own thing and not worry about it, cut that noise out because I just sort of, no one knew who I was. So and like no one knew anyone really. So I just sort of had this complete autonomy, which was, um, which was really great because I just sort of, not that I didn't give a shit, but I just, I wasn't looking over my shoulder or, or anything. I didn't really care. Um, until one afternoon when Pierre Garnier walked in, but that was a, another story. <laughs> <laughs> well, tell us, tell us about that. One of the world's greatest chefs. Um, yeah, well, it was, so we got to Arlen, it was about two weeks in and um, when we landed, we found out that there was a, a feria, so a big bullfight. And they're like, well, your um, your restaurant's going to be full pretty much every service. Um, so we decided we'd do a set menu so we could maximize spend because they said people would just sit and nurse a glass of wine. So I decided it was a smart idea to do a five-course menu. Um, that way we could get the spend up. But never mind that you're doing like 50 covers a service and you've got to prep that with two chefs and, you know, you're prepping all of that. It was just a nightmare. And then uh, like the ducks and stuff over there, like getting whole ducks with heads on and dirty feet and all that sort of stuff. That was So that was sort of the week that set up for me, like prepping 100 ducks by myself, um, start to finish, all that sort of stuff. And then the last day, the last service, I sort of had run out of a lot of like just the final touches, the nicer things. So go for a run and do a little forage. And then when I got back, the, the girl's like, okay, we don't want you to freak out, but Pierre Garnier's booked in. And I was like, oh, okay, yeah, no worries, guys. All right, I'm just going to go set up for service now. No, like, you need to be serious. Like, like we're being serious. And I was just like, what do you mean, Pierre Garnier? In. like are you kidding me i was like why didn't someone tell me and they're like well you were running like did you think that we could get a hold of you i was like oh god so here i am freaking out that this guy's coming in so I, i've knocked up this dish that i was testing and then i go to like serve it to him and then his wife is vegetarian so it was this open duck ravioli <laughs> <laughs> so i've 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 done it and then all of a sudden i've had to pivot and make an asparagus one for his um for his wife. So, but yeah, that was a really great experience trying to, um, 
you know, he came in and said, thank you. And it was this awkward thing where I was like, I should try and get a photo with him because this will never happen again. And then I was embarrassed and, you know, sort of like don't want to feel like a dickhead asking someone in broken English, broken French for a photo. But, yeah, just the fact that, you know, he really liked liked everything. It was probably one of the best things that's ever happened in my life. All the while through your career, you had personal uh, experience with, with mental health and it led you to the creation of Food for Thought. Tell us a bit about starting that up and, and what, what it was for. Um, yeah, well, as I sort of touched on it before, um, I think without knowing over the course of my career, I definitely probably went a bit all in on things. And then over time that sort of, I guess that grinds away your resilience a little bit. Um, but yeah, food for thought was just sort of, I hit probably a really bad point. At, uh, it's, it's happened a couple of times, I guess. And it's where I just sort of, I was in the wrong place at the wrong time, I guess, um, in terms of, you know, not being content in, in the facets of my life and, you know, those hard days when they're not good and that's all that you've got. Very easy for your mind to tell you, um, tell you things. And then, you know, obviously it's, it's your own mind that's telling you these things. And, you know, it's so easy that to have that, um, that realization that, that suicide is a good idea. Um, and yeah, I probably contemplated it for, for about four hours one morning, um, an especially hard week and um, probably a very big night on the um, on the source. Um, and I guess reaching out for help that morning, I was very lucky that my best friend answered the answered the phone call. Um, but that I guess started me on a path to actually being able to ask for help and being able to speak about um, speak about what I was going through. Um, and then in turn, the more I spoke about it, obviously you start to be, become more comfortable. But the other thing that I started to see was the help that was available. Um, it was like we lifted a little bit away from my face. So I started to see the bigger picture. And then, you know, talking to people, they're like, well, we never knew, like, that you were struggling. It just seemed like you, you were all over it. Um. So then all of these things sort of started hitting me and then, you know, I I said to Pete, like, I really want to do something um, to make noise around this because, you know, like Pete was, Peter Gunn was probably massively pivotal in, in the decision to do Food for Thought and really supported me through it, um, kept me realistic about what to expect because he sort of wanted me to not be back to where I started because I got this this instant like overriding excitement and, and hope that I could create this big movement that um, would help everyone, which in the early days was sort of there, but it was very hard to, to get any sort of um, traction because at that time it was very much taboo to talk about mental health. So, 
it was very hard to get anything in the papers. So it was hard to advertise the events. Um, initially, it was probably a, too big of a risk for restaurants to affiliate themselves with um, with something like that. So we sort of did the first one and we were, we were chefs in the best restaurants in Melbourne. Um, I couldn't tell you how many hats we had, you know, but it had to be off the back of our own names and it was just a lot of families and friends. So we probably only sold about 75% of the tickets. Um, so, yeah, Pete keeping me honest with that one and saying, you know, I don't want you to, to get your hopes up because, you know, people might not necessarily care about the fact that you're trying to do this. And I think probably saved me from going down into it like into depression again because i mean that first one i was i only got through it with a glass of full prosecco pretty much the whole time because it was still very fresh for me um and i was I, I mean i can speak about it quite plainly now but that first first one was really really difficult um but then it built um i mean we only really had maybe one major publication write about it in the first three years um and that was, I think, maybe the the third year, um, and then it was very hard to get. Yeah, I mean, probably the biggest year was the fifth year. Um, by that stage, I sort of it had blown up to be too big for me, um, and started doing um, doing the opposite. So initially, it empowered me to to give mental health a face, something that I could fight. And then towards the end, it was just it was yeah it, it did the opposite it sort of I think it was probably about three months too late um I'd already had like commitments you know still three months into the future and I, I was back struggling um and um yeah it just sort of unfortunately it was right at the time where it it was getting a lot of press um but, I mean, off the back of that, there's a lot of people in the mental health space now that are doing things. So I guess it's, yeah, it's 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 a positive to know that there's plenty of people still talking about it, even though right now I'm still building myself up to be able to. What impact did this initiative that you created have, have on people through these events? Um, I think... Like there was, you know, ha- having all the chefs that we had involved, um, you know, it really empowered them. And, you know, the the, the tools that we sort of talked about at the events, because uh, it was more than just the dinners. Um, I did a lot of, um, and then a lot of, you know, I was lucky enough to be invited on the, um, the Electrolux um produce tour was um one year of the finalists and and the finalists for that year like just being able to talk to them and sort of give them tools and um help them identify things that might help them you know help other people um it's probably one of the best things that i was able to achieve but just i think the availability to be able to tell people you know that it's a not a like it's okay to not be, a, and then to sort of. I think when you give people tangible examples of, you know, how to spot a behavioural change or, even just 
opening people's eyes up to the fact that, you know, we go through our lives as chefs and we become good chefs and then all of a sudden we're a manager. We're trained for four years or three years to be a chef and then all of a sudden we're a manager and there's not really any training to that. So we're chefs looking after people and then these people are the apprentices like myself that, you know, they're not at home, they're away from their family they could be figuring out how to, you know, be a, be an adult, and then you're throwing them into this pressure cooker where they're not used to. There's heat. There's sharp objects. There's this pressure to get things perfect every every time. I mean, and I hope that in this day and age, there's there's not like the military style kitchens and the yelling. But I mean, it is a hot place, and people do get angry on the odd occasion. But you know, I feel like there's this disconnect and it's just being able to tell people, like, take a step back and, you know, are you explaining yourself properly? Do you remember what it was like to be an apprentice? Um, I think because a lot of people forget. What's some of the things you identified through your own experience um, that helped you create the tools to share with people? Um, I think it's just like sharing my story. Um, has been the biggest one, like the biggest biggest tool that I've been able to um, share with everyone. I mean, I did a bit of training with Are You Okay about um, like their steps on how to have a conversation with someone and sort of a bit of the backstory about how to, um, you know, if you see a behavioural change, maybe, you know, someone's appearance or like they look like they've had a few few rough nights or maybe they're heavily distracted at um, at work and they're cutting themselves or they're burning themselves. Maybe there's there's something more to that. Um, and then that might be a point at which you just check in with them. Um, but I guess the biggest thing is probably, you know, you need to have a pre, pre-existing relationship, especially with your staff, um, to be able to have the ability to have a conversation. So I think one thing that I really pride myself on is when I position, and it doesn't even have to be, I don't even have to be a head chef, but if I'm in sort of like a senior role um, or just if I'm a senior person in a kitchen, I'll really make an effort to make sure that I will say hello to everyone, um, you know, while looking them in the eye, ask them how they are, to coming back from a weekend, ask them how their weekend was, um, at Benelong, I used to make everyone coffees every morning and go around, and that's, you know, 20 coffees. Also a barista. But just that, you know, that fact that you've made that effort to go and say hello to everyone and you're checking in with them. And then I, in turn, like a lot of people would come to me if there was an issue because they thought that there was this pre-existing relationship that I, I could help you have in some venues you have people and like they don't even you know they walk in and they're so focused on the things they need to do that there's this disconnect until it's time to you know have you got this have you got that you know and I think that's one really big thing because if you do notice that person that's that's cut themselves three times today um and you you know you pull them aside and you're like you know, what's going on? Are you okay? I've noticed you've cut yourself a few times. Is everything all right? 
you need a little bit of support, that person is probably not really that likely to open up to you. If, if there is something going on, if, you know, you've walked to them and the first thing you've said is like, you know, have you got enough quail for today? So I think, and, you know, it's very easy to slip into these patterns and um, it's because we're, you know, we're so rushed off our feet as chefs. We're worried about, you know, food costs, getting things things done. Um, obviously, there's all the pivoting with COVID, um, not, not knowing what the next day would bring, but you don't have that sort of connection with your staff. I think that that can make it really hard for you as a manager. You're now back uh, surrounded by family and friends and you've started a, a young family of your own. How important has that been um, for your own mental health? Uh, it's just amazing, I think. I mean, you would know how refreshing it is to have, um, like, the laughter in your house. Um, what the – like, what Sonny's smile does and his, like, little laugh. I mean, no matter how tired I am, um, it, it takes – when he wakes up um, from his nap after he's woken me up from my nap, <laughs> <laughs> you know, he pushes himself up and just sort of smiles because he sees you and, and, you know, it doesn't matter how tired you are that, that, um, that just sort of washes everything away. But I think it's really helped me not bring work home, um, able to disconnect because I've, um, I just, I get home and I like I try and do these things, but then I just sort of I feel like I'm robbing him of of time. So I guess it it means I've I'm forcing myself to find that balance, um, and I'm not really wanting to take any time away from from him and from my wife as well because I mean it's hard it's hard to try and figure out what this baby baby human is that can't speak to you that can only screaming or laughter, um, what, what they need. I mean, initially it's, you know, it's like change hungry or, um, you know, upset and you've got to, you've got to go through the motions to figure out which one it is. Um, so I think just trying to be supportive of that, like, and sometimes it's hard, but you know, it's not that hard in the scheme of things. I know you're involved in quite a few things at the moment, but what's what's on the card? What are you what are you building towards at the moment with your career? Um, I sort of, um, I guess I'm going away from cooking a little bit. Well, I am, and I'm not. Um, <laughs> it's a bit of a weird one, I guess. Like, I'm sort of changing my idea of what I look like as a chef um, or as a hospitality professional. For probably. That's probably a better blanket statement. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm back baking now. Um, so that's sort of been a little bit of a shift in the last couple of weeks to to working overnight, which is it's a lot. It's a lot of a different stress to like a service stress um, dealing with all 500 kilos of sourdough and it's pretty physical, but also don't have to deal with. Um, the risk of burning or cutting myself. Um, sharpest knife I've got is a bench knife that I that I portion the dough with. So um, that's been really, really good to be sort of back baking and trying to to learn skills 
you know, that are different from cooking um, in a commercial bakery sense, like well, an artisan bakery sense. But then we're also, we just, last Sunday we did our first um, pop-up event. So we had the Food Plus Wine pop-up for, for years. And, um, yeah, I mean, that was quite a lot of work. And I've realized that sort of I don't have the availability to work that hard anymore. So me and Kate have teamed up with um, Tabitha. Um, just that way we can sort of, you know, you can achieve a lot more comfortably with with two chefs in the kitchen that have sort of got that mutual goal towards doing something together. Um, so we've we've launched um, Any Given Sunday under the uh, – so, so we've done like – one event now and we also did like a bake over for lifeline a couple of weeks ago and raised i think like three and a half four thousand dollars um yeah so that was a lot of a lot of bread and we did some butter chicken sausage rolls and a, a bee thing and stuff um yeah you know just doing different things to sort of keep keep ourselves interested and also keep people interested in what we're doing so we'll look at you know like a a hospital night down the track and that sort of thing. Well, it sounds amazing, Mal. And um, what you've achieved uh, for everyone else in the industry is is inspiring. Um, hats off to you for that. We've loved having you on Deep in the Weeds today to share your story um, and look forward to seeing more of uh, your pop-ups all around the country. Please keep in touch and uh, we'll catch up again soon. Will do, mate. Thank you. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we share the stories of Australia's hospital community, suppliers and producers in search of hope during this pandemic. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Follow us on Instagram at Deep in the Weeds podcast or email us at podcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay safe and be well.